Come thou fount of every blessing To my heart to sing thy grace Enter the Lion. That's our theme today from Revelation 19. Don't confuse this with Enter the Dragon. That would be Bruce Lee. Now this is a much different deal. Our text today narrates a day that the saints of God have looked forward to for millennia. The earth has been in rebellion since the fall dictated in Genesis chapter 3. And what awful fruit we've witnessed from that terrible moment. Just look at history. Look around. Then look up, because redemption draws near, thank the Lord. How far the kingdom of man is from what God intends in his kingdom. Soon and very soon, the curse will be practically reversed. Don't forget, it was spiritually reversed on the cross of Jesus. But final deliverance awaits, and that's what we find today as we begin with Pastor Al Pittman on this episode of the Calvary Worship Center podcast. Originating from Colorado Springs, here we go. Enter the Lion. Let us pray and ask the Lord to bless his, uh, his word today. I've entitled this message, Enter the Lion, not Enter the Dragon. That's Bruce Lee, amen. Uh, and we know because we're wise people that the dragon is the devil. Amen. We've been studying the book of Revelation. And so we want to say, enter the lion. Amen. Let us pray and ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you, Lord, for those gathered online. And Lord, those who are at Creekside, Father, we thank you, Father. We ask that you would bless your word, that your word would go forth with your promise, that it will not return to you void, but will accomplish that which you send it to do. And that you would grant us ears to hear and hearts to receive your word, that you might be glorified. Lord, let it be so. We ask this all in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 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 Well, chapter 19, we have the triumphant entry, or I say entry, but it's the return, actually, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And verses 1 to 10, we find the prelude to his return. And then verses 11 to 21 We see his actual return to the earth. And it's always exciting to understand that uh, this is the Lord showing us what's going to happen in the future. These things are things that are to come. We're all looking for this great day. That great day, the culmination of human history, the expectation and the rejoicing of all the saints of God. This day is what we're going to look at today. Amen. We begin here, of course, at verse 1. Read with me verses 1 to 5. And then we'll begin to unpack the word of God. John writes, after these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia. Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot. You remember the great harlot? That is a false religion, the leader of the false religion during the tribulation period. Who corrupted the earth with her fornication and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants, uh, his servants shed, uh, shed by her. Amen. Again, in verse 3, he says, again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the, 20, uh, and the four uh, living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen and Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his saints and those who fear him, both small and great. Let's read verse six six also. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of many thundering saying, hallelujah, 
for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Amen. There are several hallelujahs here, and uh, the word hallelujah, many of you know, is, is Greek, actually. It's the Greek form of a Hebrew word, the Hebrew word hallelujah, amen, meaning the same thing. And so you didn't know you could speak Greek and Hebrew. You say, hallelujah, I'm speaking Greek, hallelujah, you're speaking Hebrew, amen. And it simply means praise the Lord. Now, what's interesting is that it is it, right here in our text, this is the only place in the New Testament that this word is found, hallelujah. And it's definitely marking that great day, the return of our Lord. There's meanings behind uh, these hallelujahs. For one instance, in verse 1, the first hallelujah speaks of redemption. He says, salvation, glory, honor, and power belong to our God and only to our God. And Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to God. It's only through him that God has provided atonement. And Acts chapter 4 verse 12 tells us, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is the name of Jesus. Amen. And then the multitude is is declaring hallelujah. Who is this multitude? Well, we are looking forward into the future at ourselves. Amen. That's the church. Every Jew, every Gentile in Jesus Christ, every tongue, every tribe, every nation that is in the Lord will be gathered around the throne of God, praising the Lord, (coughs) excuse me, saying hallelujah or hallelujah to the Lord, our God. It's the same scene that we saw in Revelation or similar scene that we saw in Revelation chapter 7, Revelation chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. So the first hallelujah speaks of our redemption. Amen. And that's something to be praising God for, right? And then the second hallelujah here speaks of righteous retribution as he speaks of the retribution of God, the vengeance of God upon the great harlot uh, as the Lord vindicates those uh, saints who were martyred during the tribulation period. Remember back in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, how John said, I, I saw under the altar of God in this vision, he saw under the altar of God, the saints who had been martyred during the tribulation period. And they were crying out to the Lord, how long, O Lord, before you avenge us, before you vindicate us? And it wasn't long because here we have the vindication, if you will, or the, the, uh, God's revenge upon the harlot, the great harlot, the system of Babylon, the world that has persecuted his saints and his prophets. The third hallelujah that we find here speaks of God's greatness, verses 4 and 5. speaks of the greatness of God and the, four, uh, the, the 24 elders and the, and the f- uh, uh, four living creatures that are around the throne of God uh, fall down on their face and they cry out, amen and hallelujah. Amen, that is so be it, so be it. And hallelujah, they praise the Lord. And both small and great, the Bible tells us in verse 5, both small and great praise uh, the Lord here. And uh, that is, no matter if you're rich or poor in the kingdom, if you're, you know, uh, unknown or famous or whatever in the kingdom, whoever you are, here is our common employment or our our common uh, uh, response to our God, his greatness, and that is to worship him and to praise him. That's what we are called to do. That's what we're created to do, amen? And so small and great are praising the Lord. It is the occupation, if you will, of every believer. The fourth 
Alleluia speaks of God's power. God's power. Verse 6 speaks of his great power, that he is the omnipotent. The latter part of verse 6, he's the omnipotent God, that is the all-powerful God, and that he reigns. He reigns. He alone, by his power, has brought about this day. And more specifically, in verses 7 to 10, talks about what day this is. And of course, this is the prelude again to the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And, um, but the power of God has brought about this day. What day has he brought about? Well, verse 7 says, let us be glad and rejoice. Give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And who is the wife of the lamb? Who is the lamb of God? That's Jesus, right? He is the groom. Who is the bride? The church. Amen. And we have made ourselves ready for him. We have prepared our hearts to receive him. Amen. And so uh, he's speaking here about that day. God's greatness and, and power has brought about this day whereby we are able to uh, be joined with Christ in what is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. We read on in verses 8 to 10. In verse 8, the Bible says, And to her it was granted, that is to the church, to be arrayed with fine linen and clean, uh, linen clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Amen. The righteous acts of the saints. The Bible says that we will not, the church will not appear, believers will not appear before the great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20. But we will appear before the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, and our works will be tried by fire to see if they're of you know, gold and precious metals or if they're of wood, hay, and stubble. There's a lot of people doing works in the name of the Lord, but there's to glorify themselves and not God. And so God, Jesus is going to be the, the, uh, the one who tests our works as our works are tried by fire. And some will actually enter into heaven, the Bible says, as those barely escaping the flames. Amen. You don't want to get into heaven and go, whoo, just made it. Amen. I guess that's better than not going there, but you know. But all, some have worked all these years and written books and done all these things. I'm not saying it's writing books is, and all these things are bad. I'm just saying a lot of it has been done to puff themselves up secretly. God knows the real motivation of your heart. And he will judge your works. But that which comes through the flames, amen, that which is of gold and precious stones, that which is genuine for the praise and glory of God, the church will be rewarded for in their clothed in those works and their works are called fine linen, clean and bright, in uh, uh, righteousness and so and all. In verse 9, we read on, Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the, are the true saints of God. Let me just stop there. Basically, he's saying, you know, uh, the angel is saying, this, the things that you've just heard about, the, the praising and the, elder, the 24 elders and the, the, the four living creatures and beings falling down and all these things you've heard, this is going to happen. This day is going to come to pass. You might not be able to get your mind around it right now, but God is not a man that he should lie. Amen. He, this is the truth. This ain't just wanted to just let John know, amen, that this is true. This is going to come to pass. And we are privileged today. God didn't have to give us the book of Revelation. That we could see, God says, this is what's going to happen in the future to encourage our hearts. 
the angel says, this is going to happen. And, and John, man, he's, he's flummoxed. He's, he's, his mind is blown. Amen. Uh, he doesn't know what to do. And he kind of, you know, uh, responds like Peter did on the Mount of Transfiguration. We got to do something. Let's just build some tabernacles, you know, to Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Let's, you know, we got to do something. You know, and that's the way we are when, when God's power and glory comes upon us. We feel, I got to do something. No, sometimes just, just what the father said, shut up, sit down and listen to my son. Amen. And you didn't like that, but that's all right. <laughs> just be quiet. This is my beloved son. Hear him. That's what God wants you to do. And we want to be busy and running. You know, be still and know that I'm God. So he, John didn't know what to do, so he just he kind of panics. This is blowing his mind. Hey, I, I give John credit here, man. I, my mind would have been blown in Revelation chapter 1. And he's receiving all this information, all this download. And, and he said, I fell at his feet. Whose feet? The angel's feet. To worship him. We're always looking for something to worship, aren't we? And the temptation many times is that, especially in churches, people start worshiping the vessel rather than the one who created the vessel. God created the angels. God created all the, the vessels. He created the church. You know, and a lot of times we find people worshiping false teachers, the vessel. Worshiping the pastor. Don't you ever put me on a pedestal. Because when you do, you're just going to watch me fall. Because I'm flawed. Don't put a pastor on the pedestal. You know, you got, you got to be careful. I mean, it's, it's, that, that's the first sign or, or the aim or the goal of every false teacher is to receive worship from the people. That's how people are deceived. For one thing, they're not reading their Bibles. Amen. If you just read your Bible, you won't be deceived. But every year, even now as I'm speaking, there's people out there right now following some joker who's calling himself Jesus, and he's not Jesus because they're not reading the Bible. But their goal is to receive your worship. But isn't that the devil's goal? The angel rebukes him and says, don't do that. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am, listen, your fellow servant. Wow. The angels are our fellow servants. How would you like to have an angel as a sidekick? Amen. Walk out on the playground and somebody's picking on you. Hey, Gabriel, take care of my light work. Amen. One angel destroyed 185,000 Syrian troops, Assyrian troops. One angel. He's a bad man. And he said, I'm your fellow servant. I'm, you know, I'm just a servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Then he says this, here's two words. This is, this is the whole of our existence. This is the whole of what we're called to do. Worship God. Don't worship men. Don't worship angels. People running around worshiping angels. I'm studying angels. Well, that's good. No, you know, we need to understand the function in scripture, but you don't worship them. Worship God. Get back to the Garden of Eden. That's the purpose for which you were created. Well, why am I here? To worship God. You're created to know him and to be known by him. That's who we are. Amen. Worship God. Worship God. 
For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Amen. In verses 7 to 10, he's talking about the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it, it helps to have a basic understanding of ancient Jewish weddings or marriages to understand God's purpose for the church towards the end times. And uh, there are basically, and I'm not an expert in ancient Jewish marriages, but there are four basic steps I want to make you aware of today that fit well within God's plans for the church. The first step is that the, in the, according to ancient Jewish marriages, and they don't, you know, Jews do not practice this today. Uh, we definitely don't practice it in our culture. But the first step was the betrothal. That is the covenant. The man and the woman are betrothed to each other. We call it the engagement. And in Jewish, ancient Jewish culture, when you're engaged, you're betrothed, you were, you were married. And you were, because you, you were under covenant. Well, the Bible says the same thing about the church. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, the Bible says that the church is betrothed to Jesus Christ by a covenant, but it's a new covenant, not according to the law, but according to grace and mercy. The second step in ancient Jewish marriages was that the groom would return to his father's house. After being betrothed and the betrothal, he would return to his father's house. In ancient times, the bridegroom, or the groom rather, would uh, return to his father's house, be separated from his bride for up to 12 months. And during that time, he would be preparing a place for he and his bride in his father's house. Building an addition onto his father's house or a place in his father's house for the bride. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? You see, I'm talking about the church. The Bible says, Jesus declared in John chapter 14, that in my father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. We are betrothed to Christ. And he has gone away to prepare a place for us, but he's coming again. Yeah. Amen. Now, hang on, hang on. Here, here's the third step. The groom comes for his bride. Amen. Now, according to ancient Jewish tradition, he would come at a time unknown to the bride. He said, I'm, a, I'm going to prepare a place, but I'm coming back for you. She didn't know exactly what time. They didn't have, you know, uh, text messaging and emails and all that stuff. She didn't know when he was coming, but he was coming, Right. She just needs to be ready. Amen. Speaks of the church. I remember my wife and I, when we were dating, actually our first date, I always tell this story, so if you heard it, you know, I'm sorry, I'll repeat it. But I showed up early to pick her up, and she wasn't ready. She was in the big picture window at her mom's house, and her mom, I think, was doing something to her hair or something, and I heard her scream, He's here! You know. Have my little afro going on, my little safari suit with the wide lapels. Y'all, come on now. Have my platform shoes on. I had borrowed my dad's car to pick her up. It was 1973 Dodge Charger. Amen. She thought she had won the lottery. Amen. Until our second date, I showed up in 1965 Ford Comet with a hole in the floorboard. Amen. That was my car. Hey, you got to do what you got to do. I'm saying you know, we didn't have uh, match dating and all that back in my day, man. You had, to, you had to be, you know, creative. All right. 
All I got to say is she's with me now. Amen. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> but I showed her she wasn't ready, and I thought, wow, yeah, that's probably a sign for the future. Amen. But, uh, <laughs> amen. <laughs> I'm always early, and, you know, the Lord said, that's, it's your job. You need to wait on her. Amen. Jesus is coming back for his bride. And the bride needs to be ready. We're waiting for him, but he's not going to let us know when. He just said, be ready. Watch and pray. He coming, he's coming back for the, tr- the church and what is known as the rapture of the church. So this is where we are right now. We're waiting for him to come back for his bride. Paul described it this way. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be, always be, always be with the Lord. Therefore, no matter what you're going through today, comfort one another with these words that we're waiting for the groom to take us home. Here's the fourth step, and and, uh, and according to ancient Jewish uh, weddings, and that is the groom takes the bride to his father's house. According to ancient tradition, there he would consummate the marriage and celebrate the wedding feast. This is a scene we find here in verses seven to ten. He talks about the wedding feast of the Lamb. We're at the feast. The Lord is showing us the wedding feast that we will partake in. The church, the church has already been consummated. The Bible says we are one in Christ. When a man and woman come together, the Bible says they shall be one. Amen. Not two, but one. And we are one in Christ because we've been consummated in him. To come to Jesus Christ is to become one with him. And now here in our text, it shows the church gathered at the wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen. And you and I are there. Now, some people have wondered, well, what are we going to do when we're raptured and and we're going to sit in heaven and we're going to wait around in the waiting room or something until the Lord tells us it's time to go. He's going to come back physically to the earth. You know, what's going to happen in that, you know, during that period? Well, remember, there's a seven-year tribulation period the church is going to be taken out of here before that seven-year tribulation period uh, takes place. Some people debate about that, but I'll let them debate. I don't believe God has appointed us under wrath, but to salvation. Amen. So the Bible says. And so we're going to be taken out of here. The seven-year tribulation period takes place. And during that seven-year tribulation period, we're going to be in heaven celebrating in the wedding feast, partying down with Jesus for seven years. Amen. Because what are we going to be doing? Now, it's interesting. You say, well, I don't know about that. Well, it's kind of interesting. God always, you know, that number seven, number one is the number for complete, completion. Amen. And, the, and it was seven days, according to ancient Jewish marriage tradition. The wedding feast lasted, guess what? Seven days. And we're in heaven for seven years. What are we doing? I think we're celebrating. Rejoicing. Amen. Amen. And happy, the Bible says, blessed, happy are those 
who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lord is calling you to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You're watching online, you're over at Creekside, you're here in his auditorium. I want you to know that if you don't know Jesus Christ, he has sent out the invitation by way of the cross. And whosoever will come and receive him can come to the wedding feast. Whosoever will come to him by faith, put their trust and faith in him, that he died for all their sins, all of the, our messes, all of the wickedness of our heart. He died for that. It's covered by God's grace and his mercy if we will put our faith and trust in what Jesus has done for us in his invitation to come to the wedding feast. Amen? So, if you want to be blessed, you want to be happy, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast and those who attend the wedding supper of the Lamb. The angel says to John, worship God there in verse 10. Well, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What does that mean? It simply means that from the book of Genesis to Revelation is all about Jesus. The gospel is, is preached all throughout the Old Testament right into the New Testament. From Genesis to Revelation, there is what is called that red or that scarlet cord that goes throughout Scripture and it all speaks of Christ. Even in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned, they tried to cover up their sin like we all do to no avail with fig leaves. And they said, oh, Lord, we heard you coming and we were naked. And the Lord said, who told you you were naked? They had sinned against God. And they tried to hide their sin, conceal themselves. And the Bible says there in the Garden of Eden that God obviously killed an animal because he clothed them, provided a covering for them by the skin of an animal that was sacrificed to cover their nakedness. And that, my friend, is the first revelation we have of what Jesus would do through the atoning work of the cross. Amen? We were naked, and he came, he died for our sins, that we might be covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Amen? We, try, can't, we can't cover it up ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. Only God can cover our sin. And he has done it through the death of his son, just as he did through the death of that animal in the Garden of Eden to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. From Genesis all the way through the revelation, Jesus Christ in the Old Testament concealed and the New Testament revealed. He's there through the whole book, 66 books of the Bible. Christ, the scarlet cord, the red cord, the blood is throughout. The testimony of Jesus. And he says, worship God for that. Why? Because God is the only one who has made a way. God didn't have to do it. But he made a way for us through the death of his son that our sins might be covered. And when did he do it? He did it while you were cursing him out, when you were cussing him out, when you were angry with him, when you were mad at him. Some may be sitting here today, you're mad at God. You hate God. Well, God doesn't hate you. You're fighting against yourself. When did he make atonement for me, pastor? Well, the Bible says, for when we were still without strength, when we were still sinners, in due time, Christ died for us the ungodly. Oh, I wasn't ungodly. I was a bad person, but I wasn't ungodly. No, we're all ungodly for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We were ungodly. And Jesus died for us while we were the enemies of God. That's how much he loves us. The testimony of Jesus Christ. And what about that? Again, that, that 
testament of, uh, testimony of the Lord from Genesis to Revelation, but the testimony of Jesus Christ, that is the anchor to our soul. Not my testimony, not the testimony of the church. You start talking to people about church and they'll start talking to you about all the fallen priests. You start talking to people about the church, they'll talk to you about some fallen pastor. You talk to them about the church and they'll start telling you, oh, that's the reason I don't go. Those people are here. I know people say that all the time. Oh, a bunch of hypocrites down there. I always say, you know what? We got room for one more. <laughs> Amen. Because nobody here has arrived. Nobody here has arrived. We're all sinners in recovery. Amen. God is sanctifying those who are in Christ. That's a process. So, you know, it's just, it's just an excuse. But you can, if you look at the testimony of the church, look at the testimony of Pastor Al, you can find all kinds of excuses. Because you just look a little closer, you see my flaws and my, the, 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 you know, the uh, dents in my armor and everything else. But when you examine Jesus, his testimony, you've got to conclude like Pontius Pilate, I find no fault in this man. Amen? I find no fault in this man. And the reason people like to talk about the church and put the church down and look at it and all oh, that pastor and that person and all, all that. And it's true. I mean, we have caused the name of Jesus to be blasphemed in the world. That's what our testimony has done many times. But when you look at Christ. The world even has to come to the conclusion, I find no fault in this man, but they don't want to do that. Why? Because if I find no fault in him, then I am without excuse. As long as I can point to you, I can find an excuse to not follow Christ, to not repent of my sins. But when I look to the testimony of Jesus, I must concede, I find no fault in this man, and thereby I no longer have an excuse and I must fall on my face and declare him to be Lord and to be God. And the world doesn't want to do that. But it's the testimony of Jesus that is the anchor to our soul. The angel rebukes John and uh, for wanting to worship, worship him because that is typically what we like to do when there's a great move of God or whatever. We want to build a statue of a man and put it out front or put his picture on the wall or her picture on the wall or whatever and worship other things, but worship God. He's the only one who has made a way for us through the testimony of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now in verses 11 to 20, 21, excuse me, <coughs> verses 11 to 21, we have the, the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. Amen. Oh, this is what we've been waiting for. This glorious day. Return of Jesus Christ to the earth. Verse 11, read along with me. We'll read down to verse 16. It says, now I saw, John says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. No Jesus meek and mild here. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies in heaven, the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword 
that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress uh, of the fierceness of the wrath of almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. Praise his holy name. What a glorious scene of Christ coming back to the earth. No longer coming in on a, a, the fold of a donkey, but no, on a white horse which speaks of tri, a triumphant entry. Zechariah chapter 14 says he comes back and he steps down on the Mount of Olives. And the mount splits in two. To the north and the south, a great earthquake takes place. Jesus comes in with a grand entrance. Now, John mentions here four aspects of the Lord's coming. We'll go through them here quickly here, but the first one is his character. He's faithful and true in verse 11. By his character, Satan was defeated and we were redeemed. It's the character of Christ. It's not anything we've done, not of works, lest any man should boast, but by grace we have been saved. By the character of Jesus Christ. He's faithful and he's true. The second aspect of his coming is his superiority. Now in his first advent, when he first came, he was unjustly judged, but now he comes back as the Supreme Court, as the ultimate judge. There will be no U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, no action by Congress, no world power that will be able to overturn the decisions of Jesus Christ. He will rule with a rod of iron with eyes of fire and and many crowns on his head that's just an expression related to the supreme authority of jesus christ there will be no appeal there will be no uh, debate about his decisions amen there will be no special interest group only his interests amen will be the main concern he had has a name and will have a name uh, that is not known uh, is known rather only to him the bible says it's not a name that we know it's known only to him what is that all about well some one commentator said he has a name known only to him because he's the indescribable one can't describe him but it also speaks of his oneness with the father that the father has given him a name that only the son of god knows but it's a reflection of his heart toward us. Why do I say that? Well, in Revelation chapter 2, I believe verse 17, Revelation 2, 17, there uh, Jesus says that he will give to us a white stone with a name on it that only you know what that name is. A little personal name. Kind of, you know, I, I, when I was teaching through that, some of you might recall, I, I kind of mentioned the fact that the relationship that we have with the Lord and that little special name he gives to us that only we know is, is, is sort of similar to couples who give little cute names to each other, you know, like, like Pookie Bear or something like that, you know. I mean, you don't tell your friend, your, your homies after your buddies, say, yeah, uh, just call me Pookie Bear from now on. No, you know, but you're never going to say that, you know. But your wife calls you that. Oh, Pookie Bear, yes. <laughs> you know how you are, amen. <laughs> but it's special, but it's something that's between you two, amen. So it is with the Lord. The Lord wants that kind of intimacy with us. You know, he wants to give you that special name. Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. 
speaks of our intimacy with him. The third aspect of his coming, John writes about it, is concerns his attire. His attire. He, he comes back with this robe. You know, at his first advent, they stripped him of his attire and they gambled away his garments, the Bible says. But when he returns, he will be, he will be clothed with a robe. And it's a robe that's been dipped in blood. He's coming back for judgment. This robe is one of divine judgment. And so when he comes back, he's coming to take revenge upon the earth. It's not going to be a great day for those who have worshipped the beast and have taken the mark of the beast. That is the Antichrist. The fourth aspect of his coming, John mentions here, is his name. Now he has an indescribable name, verse 13 uh, tells us he, he, uh, we already saw that he has an indescribable name, but uh, also uh, verse 13 tells us that he has a name that is known. What is that name? That name is the word of God, the word of God. So this is unmistakably, this is Jesus Christ. We know it. It's the Lord coming back, leading this army. John says in John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was deity, God. Amen. That's Jesus Christ. And the word he went on to say in chapter one became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus Christ. And so his name, his very name is the word of God. Now, when he was on earth, the religious leaders didn't know what to call him. They called him all kind of names. And one of the names they gave him was Beelzebub. They said he was casting out demons. And he said, well, you must be of the devil. So you're of Beelzebub. They kind of call, called him the devil. And I thought about that. You know, since that time, many people have given Jesus names and thought of Jesus as being this, that, and the other. They've called him a prophet. They've called him, oh, he's a, he was a great teacher. And he said, oh, he's a religious figure or what have you. No, he is the son of the living God. He is the very word of God, God incarnate, amen. He is God that has become flesh. And when he returns, nobody will be able to deny who he really is, amen. As he comes in power, his name is the word of God. In verses 14 to 16, the lamb returns <laughs> like a lion. He's called the king of kings and lord of lords and it's written on his robe and, and on his thigh. I believe it's a tattoo. Some people want to argue about that. I don't think it's a tattoo. Well, it says it's written on his thigh. Amen. But he's got it on his thigh, written on his thigh, king of kings and lord of of lords and he returns with the army this is an angelic army and i believe it is because of what paul writes in second thessalonians chapter one if you will turn there and read along with me or just listen uh there in chapter one paul talks about the return of our lord and savior jesus christ it's very seen that we're seeing here in revelation chapter 19 beginning there at verse uh Six, I believe. Uh, yeah, where Paul writes in Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse six. Since it is a righteous thing with God, this is a righteous thing with God. What is that? To repay with tribulation those who trouble you, who trouble the church, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. No mention of the church, angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those 
who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Verse 10, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Paul's saying for those of you who are saved, who are in Christ, you know, he's going to be admired and, and glorified and all of that. But the angels, <coughs> excuse me, are coming back to help uh, conquer the earth, if you will, uh, with the Lord. Uh, and again, some believe that the saints coming with the angels, I, I don't think that's the case. And in fact, Revelation chapter 20 uh, verse 6 tells us that we will rule and reign with Christ. Our role is more of a governing role more than a conquering role. We're going to come and rule and reign with Jesus for how long? For a thousand years, the Bible says. We'll get into that in Revelation chapter 20. Um, the scripture says, we're back here at chapter 19, Revelation chapter 19, verse 15. The first part says that, that the, the phrase, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. Now, people have debated about that. What does that mean, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword? I heard one guy say that it, he thought it was a laser beam. Um, yeah, that's what I did. I laughed. Um, but, you know, I didn't mean to mock the guy, but I just, I, where do you get that from? You know, it really, you know, let scripture validate scripture. And as you look at the word of God, that is really speaking in a metaphoric sense about his very word. The Bible says that we have a two-edged sword. Now, Christians don't run around with a two-edged, a two-edged sword, you know, with them, a sword or whatever. But the Bible is speaking metaphorically of what? The word of God. And so this is speaking metaphorically of the words that Jesus will speak. Jesus will not have to wrestle. There will be no back and forth battle with the, his enemies against him in the battle of Armageddon. You know, he will simply come and speak the word and win. And conquer those uh, who are his enemies. Isaiah speaks about this very fact that it is his words, it is his mouth, and not a literal sword, not a laser beam, but his words... Isaiah chapter 49, verse 2 says, and he, speaking of Jesus, and he has made my mouth, Jesus, his, the mouth of the Messiah, like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. Jesus said, I'm a quiver. I'm a sharp, you know, shaft. I'm a, a sword in the hand of my father. And then Paul the Apostle says that when Christ returns, that he will destroy the lawless one, that is the Antichrist, with the breath of his mouth. Again, his word, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. Verses 17 and 18, as we read on, there's an invitation given here to the birds, not the band for you 60 fans, but the birds of the earth. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of, of mighty men, the flesh of horses and, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. This is an invitation to the battle, the aftermath of the battle of Armageddon. 
God is calling the birds to restaurant Armageddon to feast on the corpses of those who would not dare to defy God. In verses 19 and following, John says, And I saw the beast, that is the Antichrist, the kings of the earth, those who are rulers and power and all, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast, the Antichrist, was captured, and with him the false prophet who somehow managed to survive uh, her, the overthrow of uh, his phony uh, religious cult uh, that was worldwide. And uh, he was overthrown by actually the Antichrist. And uh, somehow he survived, the leader of this false religion survived, but he's also captured, uh, who works signs, who works signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with a sword which proceeded from the mouth. <laughs> He's just going to speak the word of him who sat on the horse. Woo! And all the birds were filled with their flesh. So the Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown into hell, an eternal hell. This is hell it's speaking about here. Burning the lake, burning with fire and brimstone is hell. Now people say, well, you know, and, and, and let me just say this. They were the first, they are, they will be, at this time they are, the, the first two occupants of hell. Now people say, wait a minute, now there's... there's more people in hell than that. I mean, people go to hell all the time. No, no one's in hell. In fact, hell was not created for mankind. It was created for the devil and his angels. But as we will see in Revelation chapter 20, uh, they are the first two, but there will be many, many who will follow, who will be cast into hell because they've rejected Jesus Christ into an eternal hell, alive, with a tormented for all eternity. It's unimaginable, but it's the price and the penalty for our rejection of God's love, and of the way of salvation and our defiance of the living God. By way of application, <laughs> let's conclude with this thought. Jesus returns as a victorious warrior, and the only outcome that he will accept is absolute victory. He's not going to come back and say, well, I'll just take a, a continent or half of the earth. He's coming back for absolute victory over the earth. And so it is really in our lives today. He comes into our lives not to just have a piece of you, but all of you. He comes in to be as a victorious warrior. I, I love it. He's a warrior. He's not a wimp. And so, so we ought to be encouraged by that very fact. He's going to keep fighting on in your life until he has all of you. He's not going to settle for just some of you. And he will not settle for a treaty or anything else. He wants absolute victory in every area of your life. So that he can rule as king of kings and lord of lords. Amen. That's why he's doing it. I'm glad we serve a God who's a warrior. Amen. Who knows how to rage and to make war. And not a whim. And that's why, because I'm encouraged by the fact that the Bible tells us, in the case of King Jehoshaphat, that battle is not ours, but it's the Lord's. Amen. Whatever you may be facing today, we serve a God who does not play. Amen. And that he will not quit until there is absolute victory. Amen. He's committed. Committed to us.
And we as followers of Jesus Christ, therefore, our victory is in the light of his countenance. As we expose our hearts completely to the will of God. Now, Jesus said the world doesn't like light. In fact, the world teaches if we can have more darkness, less God, life would be more better. But the reality is the more darkness we embrace, the worse we become. And Jesus told us why. He said in John chapter 3, he said, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That's why people don't want to hear about Jesus, why people are rejecting Christ. They love the darkness, and they think the darkness there is freedom. And it's all it is is bondage. All it is is a burden. I was reading an article the other day, speaking of light, where it says that scientists have found a way to levitate objects with light. I know some people have more time on their hands than they need, but, but the article said, it turns out the key to making things lighter then air is light. California scientists, where else? Anyway, California scientists, <laughs> yeah, I'm kidding, think they found a way to make objects levitate using concentrated light, a theory that could even propel spacecraft farther than they've ever traveled before, according to a report. Researchers at the California Institute of Technology believe that by covering the surface of objects with microscopic nanoscale patterns, specially designed to interact with beams of light, that they, the objects, could be propelled without fuel and potentially by light sources millions of miles away, close quote. Wow, your car driving on light, amen. But you know, it's always great to see when science catches up with God. Amen. Amen. He's been saying this all along. Even Jesus said it, amen. And not speaking of objects, but the object of our hearts. His object was, is our hearts. And he said this, he said, I am the light of the world. And he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Lord came to lighten mankind's load. He, he came to propel us to an eternal, everlasting destiny of joy and peace and everlasting life. Amen. About 10 of you got that. Amen. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You want to lighten your load? You want to have power to propel you forward in the destiny God has ordained for you? Rather than running on your own fuel, not by might or power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. He says, then take my, my yoke upon you. Here's how you do that. Learn of me. Amen. He says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest. For your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Jesus elevates lives. Darkness destroys lives. Sin destroys lives. Victory begins for us as believers when we learn of him. And as with the technology of light, levitation by these California scientists... 
We must expose the entire surface, the object that is our heart before God to the light of his countenance in order to find that levitation, that elevation above the problems and the trials of this life. Behold, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but I have overcome the world. Amen? And it's through his countenance, through his light, that our lives are made lighter, but we must expose the whole surface. The problem is Christians are running around depressed, come on, me included, at times, because I fail to expose all of my heart to the light. I'm holding on to a little bitterness over here, maybe a little anger down here. But light dissipates, light disinfects, light heals, light elevates, darkness destroys. The key is to learn of him, like that light technology to expose the entire surface of my heart to his will, to yield to his way, to say, yes, Lord. There's power in those words. Yes, Lord. That's where our deliverance begins. David said, when he was depressed, he said, why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in the light. Put your hope in God. For I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Remember the technology said they could empower objects from light a million miles away. Amen. The Lord's not a million miles away. He's right there with us. As close as your breath is to you. His light is there for us. The help that we have comes from his countenance, the light of his being, not who we are. Amen. Just as the Lord will return as a lion, when you allow the lion in, every lie is defeated. Stop living according to the lies. Live according to the lion. But you've got to expose your heart completely to the light. Amen. In conclusion, the lamb invites all to his wedding feast. He's a warrior. He's a king. He's the Lord. And he invites everyone to his wedding feast. The question is, and mankind would have to answer, every one of us here today, have we accepted his invitation? For God so loved the world that whosoever will believe in him shall not perish. Amen. He sent his only begotten son that whosoever will believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life father we thank you for this day that is yet future but it's glorious to our souls even now help us lord in preparation as the bride prepared herself to prepare our hearts by yielding our hearts completely every surface of our lives to the light of your countenance oh lord thank you for your grace and your mercy there may be some here today with a or watching online over at Creekside, and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'd like to give you an opportunity to open your heart to him, to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus, to know that your sins are forever forgiven, that you are being propelled by the grace of God to an everlasting, eternal destiny that is glorious. Pastor Al, I want to know that. I want to know that for myself. I want to know my sins are forgiven. My friend, I want to ask you to take a step of faith. That step of faith is simply this. 
And that is to stand to your feet. If you're watching online, there's a button for you to click to say, I want to receive Christ. If you're at Creekside, stand. If you're here, stand. If you're in our overflow upstairs, stand. And I will lead you in a prayer to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today. Well, I don't need to stand. You know, that's, that's a rebellious spirit working. I don't need to stand. You know, I'll just sit here. The reason I ask you to stand is because standing is an act of faith. And the Bible says without faith, you cannot please God. Well, I'll get home and stand. No, Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father. Are you ashamed of him? So if that's you today, you want to know Christ, I want to ask you to stand. We're not going to drag this out. We're just going to just a couple moments and we're going to move on. But this is your day. This is your opportunity to know God's great love for you. Hallelujah, indeed. Now there is a word that translates into all human languages without the need for translation. As Pastor Al said in his closing remarks, God's love for you is intense and personal, and it's willing to forgive your every sin if you will only allow the work of Jesus on the cross to do its work in your life. Look for further direction on Pastor Al's website, cwccs.org. That's cwccs.org for Calvary Worship Center of Colorado Springs. And by the way, would you tell someone about this podcast? Our next episode takes us further into Revelation when we'll hear about Judgment Day. This podcast is presented by Calvary Worship Center of Colorado Springs, where Al Pittman serves as senior pastor.